Welcome to the Triangle Gardener Magazine Show. We're your guide to enjoyable gardening in North Carolina. Today we continue our native plant series when Curtis Smalling of Audubon, North Carolina tells us about their work with native plants. I'm your host, Dan Mason. We, we kind of use the analogy that um, you know, the, the birds are looking for the whole foods when they're in migration, but most of them are winding up eating at the 7-Eleven. But first, a word from our sponsor who helps make this all possible. Garden Destinations is a digital magazine for travelers who want to experience the world's finest public gardens and garden destinations. From their website, GardenDestinations.com, you can learn about unique gardens, get insider tips from expert travelers, and make plans to include these destinations in your next adventure. Check them out at GardenDestinations.com. Now, on with today's story. Audubon, North Carolina, is working to make our communities more bird-friendly. Recently, I was up in Boone, North Carolina, and talked with Curtis Smalling, Director of Land Conservation, to learn about the role gardeners can play. We sat outside on a pretty day, and I learned that conservation doesn't just happen out there in some park. Curtis showed me how I can make small changes in my garden and where I work that really make a difference. We want to give birds a chance to thrive um, in communities, but also to make those communities better places for the people who live there as well. And we know from, from a lot of recent study that things like the rates of asthma, for instance, go down in cities that have a higher percentage of canopy cover, so more trees, less asthma. Um, we've got a number of things, water quality benefits, you know, stormwater runoff tends to be less in places that have green space and buffers and, you know, all those things that we're kind of promoting from a, from a bird-friendly perspective. So a lot of those things have either economic benefits to community or, or personal health or, or um, quality of living benefits. So what would a bird-friendly community look like? How does it look different <laughs> than just any other space? Yeah, so, you know, it happens at a couple different scales, I guess. And, and one of those is that it's a, it's a landscape dominated by native plants. And we'll talk about why that's important for birds. But it's also important for people. I think, um, you know, a landscape dominated by native plants takes less water, um, takes less maintenance. <laughs> All those things, you know, start to play in, into that landscape dominated by native plants. The, the simplest way to say that is native plants um, you know, host native insects and native birds or songbirds use those insects, especially during the nesting season. And a, a typical songbird nest, like a chickadee nest, takes about 5,000 soft-bodied caterpillars to raise those, those one set of babies in that nest. And a, an oak tree, for instance, a native oak tree in North Carolina, um, can support up to 600 different kinds of insects throughout the course of the year. Um, if you take something like um, uh, ginkgo, we like to pick on because it's only been documented to host three species of insects. Um, crepe myrtles only host five, and most of those are nectaring species like butterflies and stuff that like the blooms. But they're not supporting any of those bird food species. They're not supporting any of the caterpillars. And so when you get a landscape that's so dominated by non-natives, productivity just crashes. And so you see a lot of birds that, you know, the, have, the structure looks good, 
there's a place for them to nest in the privet. You know, it's a good dense area, so the cardinal puts the nest there. But if there's not some baseline of native plant supporting native insects, there's nothing to feed those babies. Almost all of our bird species require protein when, when they're in the nest. Um, and so if that, if that insect load is not out there, productivity crashes. And that's what we're seeing. Um, even common birds that we think of um, as birds we grew up with in North Carolina, you know, several of those species are, are declining. Um, even blue jays and, and other species that are in our yards really need that insect load. And we're seeing for some of those species, you know, pretty significant declines. Towhees is a good example. A lot of folks know that bird, you know, it used to be called the rufous-sided towhee or um, local folks sometimes call them a chewink because of the noise they make. Um, used to be super common across North Carolina, but they've really declined statewide and really region-wide, you know, over the last 40, 50 years. And a lot of that's, you know, the structure's there. There's just not much to eat. Um, so we, we see that with a lot of our birds. And, of course, the migratory species that are just with us in spring and fall as they're coming out of Canada and heading to Central America, um, you know, they need uh, especially a lot of fruit. So all the thrushes and stuff are looking for dogwood berries and, um, you know, service berries in the summer and, and just... Beauty berry is a great one and is on our list for this year. It's just a really popular, you know, native species that birds love for that kind of fall migration time. So all those things in a landscape that's not dominated by native plants, um, you know, start to become scarcer and scarcer. Um, the question that always comes up is, well, you know, I have autumn olive and it's loaded with berries and, the, and I see birds in it all the time. And, and that's true. A lot of our birds do eat, um, you know, some of the non-native species. Um, but there have been a few studies that have shown that, that these migratory species actually prefer the native species, the native fruits first. We, we kind of use the analogy that... Um, you know, the, the birds are looking for the whole foods when they're in migration, but most of them are winding up eating at the 7-Eleven <laughs> because the, the non-native fruits a lot of times have less protein, um, less kind of retained sugars, the, the kind of lower quality food than the, than the plant species that were designed for that habitat. You know, the, the native plants typically maximize a lot of that stuff. Um, and so the birds are looking for that. Um, and again, when they can't find it, they'll use something else. Um, you know, a lot of people plant Nandina for birds. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the literature now. A lot of these birds that if that's the only thing on the landscape, um, you know, a big corporate park, it's got a lot of Nandina. Um, it's actually toxic if they eat too much of it. You know, cedar waxwings and brown thrashers and stuff will actually die from kind of too much Nandina. Um, so again, that kind of variety that the natural habitats provide is really critical. So the question I have to ask you is, you know, Birds are pretty. They sing. Right, right. They're fun. But, <laughs> but why? But why? Why do I care? Why do I care? Yeah, so, I mean, you can, you can go down a couple different roads, I guess, on that question. Um, one of them is just a basic biodiversity answer, right? You want to retain as much as you can retain um, because you just, you never know what the what the linchpin is that's holding something else together. <laughs> you know, if this, if this species is gone, you know, then, then what's the consequence of that? You know, is there another one that fills that niche or is there some, you know, odd thing that this species does that we don't know about? The other 
the other side of that is some of the specific, you know, I guess the, the phrase we all use now is ecological services. You know, what do birds do? Well, obviously they eat a lot of insects. <laughs> so if you keep them on the landscape in good numbers, they are doing a lot of kind of pest control for us. And that's, that's a whole interesting other story with the native plant work. And you know, it's one of the reasons that native plants have declined is that we, we did a really good job of discouraging people from using pesticides. So they wanted things that weren't getting eating, eaten by bugs. <laughs> so the, to a certain degree, conservationists are a little responsible for that drive as well. But um, but they do do a lot of that kind of ecological services stuff. You know, the, the crows and the vultures and all those guys take care of all the dead animals on the sides of the roads. The um, the insect eaters do that. The, the, the grain eaters pick up tons and tons and tons of weed seeds, weed seeds as we call them, a lot of the native plants, um, and consume those. Um, a lot of our birds of prey, um, you know, take care of a lot of uh, mice and rodents and rats where we live. Um, some of the species that have done actually really well in the last 20, 30 years are things like red-tailed hawks and red-shouldered hawks, which are now much more common in urban areas. They love the rats and the mice and stuff that we attract. <laughs> so they do a really good job of that for us as well. Um, there's a number of kind of agricultural benefits of having a good bird diverse community uh, in agricultural lands. A lot of that kind of pest control, insect control, weed control kind of stuff happens through birds. Um, and some folks have quantified that and it is a big number. You know, birds do provide a lot of those ecological services. So, um, But you know, from, from my perspective, being out here on a warm spring day and hearing stuff sing, that's like the best reason <laughs> you know, to keep them here. So, Curtis explained that 80% of the land on the east is privately held. So improving habitat on private land makes a huge difference. The North Carolina Audubon is focused on four urban centers in North Carolina, the Triad, the Triangle, Greater Charlotte, and Wilmington. Ignoring these urban centers, saying that they're just too developed, it doesn't make any sense. That's where most of us live, and that's where the small changes we all make can add up to more livable communities for us and the birds. So if we really want it, if we really want to kind of turn the conservation dial, it almost has to happen on private land. You know, it really has to happen there. We can set aside big reserves and that might be our kind of fail safe. You know, we've got, <laughs> we can protect the species from going extinct because we have Great Smoky Mountains National Park or whatever. But if we, if we really want to move the needle, you know, to make species quit declining and start to improve and that kind of stuff, it's gonna to have to happen on private land. You know, you may live in a townhouse in an urban center, and you may have a postage stamp yard. So I like what you're saying about a postage stamp, because I live on a postage stamp. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people do. You know, a, a, a lot of folks don't have a hundred acre wood <laughs> you know, behind their house to, to, you know, to play with and make it as bird friendly as they can. Um, there are a number of common species that, that do really well in these kind of suburban and, and fairly urbanized settings, but the time that you can really make a difference is during migration. Um, most of our birds, you know, leave us. So here in the mountains, about 75% of the birds that breed in the mountains leave for the winter and go to Central and South America. It's about 60, 65% of the birds that breed in the Piedmont region. Um, they leave. The same is true of birds farther north. So a lot of those birds from Canada that nest in the boreal forest are coming through twice a year, spring and fall. And most of our songbirds migrate at night. Um, a lot of folks don't realize that, but they take off about sunset, fly most of the night, and wherever they happen to be at three or four o'clock in the morning, they just settle in. 
rest a little bit. As soon as daylight starts to happen, then they look for appropriate places to, to feed and forage for the day. Most of them are only going to spend the day there, and then they're going to fly again the next night. Um, so for a lot of our small yards, having one good fruit-producing shrub, for instance, like a spice bush, which is one of the plants we were promoting last year, a wood thrush that lands in the neighborhood, finds a spice bush, gonna spend the whole day in that bush, eating those berries, refueling, um, getting ready to fly another 150 miles the next night. Um, that's critical. You just gave that bird one more day. Now, the next day he might find Congaree Swamp or you know some really high, what we'd consider high quality habitat. But if he's got a native shrub with high quality fruit, you've just given him one more day. Uh, most of these birds are going to go about 2,000 miles one way, you know, to get to Nicaragua or Colombia or wherever they're going. Um, and they need to be in good condition for that. Um, and so that refueling is really critically important. And when a bird basically lands by just happenstance, you know, in, a, in an area that's really not good habitat, they either stay there and kind of scrounge around for the day and wait for the next night, or they have to fly even further during the day, which again, reduces their fitness, reduces the chance that they'll survive to come back the next year. And that brings up, I think, one of the, the coolest things for me working with bird conservation is most of our land birds have what's called high sight fidelity. And most of them want to come back to the same place. So a Phoebe that nests on your porch, for instance, um, or a cardinal that's nesting in your backyard, um, some of these birds, you know, we, we, we tend to not think of them as individuals, but a lot of these species can live to be 8, 10, 12, 15 years old in the wild. You know, most succumb earlier than that. Um, the post-fledging period, like the first year of their life, is really dangerous. So with birds, if, if you make improvements to your yard or to your neighborhood or to your corporate park or whatever, the birds that have been there are probably going to come back there and they're going to do better because you've made those improvements. And their young next year, if they make the cycle and come back, are gonna settle close to where they were born. You get this little bit of dispersal. Yeah. But to me, it makes a whole different um, approach to conservation if you think that the blue jay that's in your yard could be up to 17 or 18 years old. Like, so I have blue jays nest in my yard and I always joke and say, they helped me raise my kids, right? Like they were there the whole time that I had children at home. So that same bird, you know, is coming back year after year to, to use your your postage stamp yard or your 100-acre woods or whatever. And to me, that that makes me more responsible. You know, it's not random that I have a bird in my yard. Um, it, it's very well likely the same bird I had last year. Curtis was right. I hadn't thought about those bluebirds who live in my yard as individuals who've been coming to this location for years. Maybe that very bird was here before we moved in. Maybe we're more like neighbors, and it's my responsibility to be a good neighbor and make improvements to my garden that we both can enjoy. Audubon, North Carolina, has developed lists of native plants that provide nectar, seed, and protein for birds. They've taken the next step and worked with local nurseries to provide information about where you can find native plants to purchase in your area. Check out their website, nc.audubon.org. There you'll find information about native plants and how to become a bird-friendly gardener. I'm Lise Jenkins. 
This is the Triangle Gardener. We're your guide to enjoyable gardening in North Carolina. You can find this and past episodes of our podcast at the Triangle Gardener website, trianglegardener.com. You can also now find us on iTunes. If you like what we're doing, give us a review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.